Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am your host, Chad Anderson, and I am thrilled to be joined by the talented and beautiful Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos. We are right. How are you, <laughs> Stephanie? I'm doing great, Chad. How are you? Thanks for I'm- having me. I'm good. It's been kind of a chaotic morning. It's one of those like, okay, I got a client, then I got to get the kids to school, and then I got this meeting, and then, you know, you know how it is as a parent, right? Yes, yes. But you I, squeezed it in. You squeezed it in. <laughs> uh, well, this is my top priority. Well, not. I mean, my children are my. I, I get that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, this show is the most fun I get to have on any given day. Uh, Stephanie, you have three little ones. Uh, how old's your oldest? My oldest is 11. So my oldest just, my oldest is turning 14 and I'm shifting into the like, I'm now the chauffeur role of parenting, (laughs) which is something new. (laughs) Yes, totally. Yes. Each stage of life offers something new. Now you're the chauffeur. I'm regularly reminding clients that we are the parents of our children when they are babies, but also when they are grownups, we are we grow and adapt with our kids. Uh, it has been a journey and I am up for the challenge. Um, <laughs> last night with the oldest, we were he, uh, he has to write an essay and he chose the topic of slavery in different cultures. And I was like, woof, okay. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're like, you know, busting out the encyclopedias. That's uh, it, <laughs> it is a great joy. We get to talk about parenting in today's episode also, which is great. Uh, Stephanie and I initially met through our mutual friend, Seth Martel, who does a lot of the art for the podcast. Uh, tell us, how did you initially meet Seth, Stephanie? Seth and I met on the uh, forum comics experience um, and he would post his beautiful artwork. Um, I would cheer it on. I would comment on others. You know, you, you review scripts and Seth was so awesome that he approached me and said, you know, you seem like a really nice person. I'd love to do a comic with you. And the rest is history. <laughs> I love it. We've gone on to make so many comics together and it's just been a joy knowing him and as a friend. I initially, uh, I I liked his art. So I reached out and had him do this uh, mastermind on my wall over here, which you can't see because my microphone's in the way right there. And uh, we just kind of started chatting and have ended up becoming great friends. Uh, He's one of my closest friends, actually. We text consistently. I don't have a lot of close friends. So he's been a a joy to have in my life. He's a wonderful person. And I'll say related to what we're going to be talking about, one of the things that drew me to Seth's uh, work was how well he wrote and drew women and we'll talk mm-hmm. about that as we talk about Jean Grey but it was a big deal for me really big deal uh tell us about your love of Jean now Stephanie has published an article and that has won awards literally titled Jean which is <laughs> why, why I suggested this character for us to explore or this character's family uh tell us about your relationship with the character Jean Grey Sure, sure. And I'll end with that uh, award and story that I got. So, you know, it, it was interesting taking the show because I didn't think about it. I'm like, you know, for for those that can't see it, I have like a Jean Grey everywhere behind me. So I had you forced me to think about why Jean Grey. And I think I can give you two answers. They're probably all, both very long. Um, one is Jean Grey, Stephanie as a preteen and then as a woman. Um, but you know, it's like chicken or egg. Did Marvel make me get into Jean Grey or is it, um, you know, that I like Jean Grey, you know, Jean Grey and Cyclops are like the the Skywalkers of Star Wars, right? We just keep getting their stories over and over. So it's a chicken or egg. But for me, entering comics in like the 80s and early 90s, um, a lot of it was back issues. Um, uh, I was probably being introduced 
to the resurrected Jean Grey. So it was always this mystery, like what is this mysterious background that Jean Grey has and me uncovering uh, the Phoenix story. Um, I think with Jean, um, we get a lot of Eve and Lilith, right? We get yeah, yeah. the 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 motherly loving figure, and then you get when she has dark phoenix, you know, when she's dark phoenix, you get the redheaded Lilith. So there's a little bit of of that. I'm also a romantic, so um, if it's kind of hard not to fall in love with Jean Grey and the Cyclops story. Um, I'm also a sucker for divine couples. If you ask me why I like the Matrix, it's Neo and Trinity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, a sucker for those stories, the divine couple, um, Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ, depending on which scriptures you're reading. Um, <laughs> so, so that's there too. We're talking. Um, we're talking the Da Vinci Code now, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, the stuff like. I read the nonfiction that informed the, the <laughs> even even worse, um, you know. And some of it, you know, I wasn't looking for mirrors. I know this is is crazy. Um, you know, I grew up in a very diverse New York City. I had everything around me. You know, m m all of my cultures. So I wasn't looking that for that in in outside in the mediums. Um, and but I will say a lot of her story takes place in my local neighborhood where I grew up, where she becomes Dark Phoenix at Central Park. And I, uh, where her and Scott go on dates at Central Park, and I share memories of of going on dates um, there. So. You know, there's just, oh, and I got to say, Jamaica Bay, my high school fishing, uh, I took, we had actually had a fishing class in New York City, believe it or not. We, instead of gym, we had a fishing class. Oh, I believe we, it. We would practice with fishing rods in a room. And then at the end of the semester, they took us to Jamaica Bay to actually fish. And I literally believed maybe we'll find Jean Grey because this is where her cocoon was, right? So I had an active imagination. I would go to Central Park, look in the sky as the Phoenix coming. So all of those reasons are, you know, why Jean Grey? I will say, and I'll, I'll end with this. Um, and when we get to X-Men 137, because we got to spend a lot of time on that, Chad, you know, Jean offers what I think many of us, you know, could only wish for or some of us, right? And it's the question of immortality, right? Um, if you could just keep on living or die and get resurrected the jesus christ story would you accept that um you know these are i'm a a, a sucker for things like that big questions i think gene gray offers that um if you could just erase your past and rearrange your memories would you do it you know they're big big questions particularly for those that come either from their own personal trauma or intergenerational trauma if you had that power would you take it and the the story of jean gray uh takes us there uh tell tell us about the story you wrote and and ah. your award <laughs> yeah so i wrote a, a short story uh, titled Jean. It's actually an entire novel, and I condensed the novel into a short story, Jean. Um, it's in the anthology Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, a Latinx anthology. Um, and basically, because yes. Which is, which is lovely and well worth the order. I read it front to back. It's a great book. Well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Um, the story follows a New Yorkian preteen who uses star, uh, Marvel Comics as star maps to navigate life, and specifically the X-Men and X-Men 137 and the story of Jean Grey. Um, you know, spoiler, spoiler alert, <laughs> but, you know, the story really takes 
the Dark Phoenix Saga specifically, um, and a young girl processing the trauma of having a heroin addicted mother and losing her and um, transferring that to a superhero and, and wanting for her in many ways to be more than human and be resurrected. So total spoiler. Um, but I was very excited um, to receive the Janice Award at Chautauqua this year for the story. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's so good, your story, that I thought it was autobiographical at first. <laughs> Well, it wasn't until I talked to you that I realized it was based in reality, but uh, a fictional story. Exactly. So I take a lot of family memories. Like if you look at each of those wormholes, because um, the story has a lot of wormholes, uh, what I call triggers uh, that bring you back to the, the painful scars of family history. Um, if you examine each of those wormholes, they're, they're real family stories um, made into fictional uh, characters. So it's not totally wrong that you thought that. Um, I'm certainly not Nova. Um, those are certainly not my lived experiences, but it is a combination of my families and my own adolescent nerdhood. I adore characters that we attach to. When I set out to do this Patreon, I wanted a creative approach and I wanted to explore the obscure. Uh, and the three goals I kind of set out initially were obscure villains, supporting characters, which includes the family, and then kind of X-Men adjacent characters, which is where we get characters like Porcupine and Unicorn that I've done episodes on. <laughs> I love doing the research and I love reading between the, between the lines to try to figure out who people are. Right. Jean uh, is one of the X-Men who's been around the longest, obviously. She's uh, the standout character in X-Men 1 and uh, the shining star of Chris Claremont's early run, along with Storm, in my opinion, and Nightcrawler in a lot of ways. But there are, uh, there are characters given to, uh, to represent a lot of different things. Jean in Claremont's run represents the idea of untapped potential and breaking barriers, uh, shattering that glass ceiling, if you will, will and seeing what happens. And she is corrupted uh, by a mastermind and she rises above, but then gives into her fury and ultimately kind of pays the ultimate price. It's, it's, a, it's a fascinating, wonderful story. I can't wait to get there on the podcast when we do get there. But I've had, to, I've had the chance to read those stories indelibly for our sexual assault trial, or our, our sexual assault conversation, which you and I had, but also for the trial of mastermind, which I had right. just before that. Right. Um, one of my favorite parts about doing these episodes on the supporting characters is we get to look at the characters that we love as framed by a conversation around their family. Because Jean's a character that's appeared nearly a thousand times in the books, but her family's only shown up about 30 times. Right. So when you look at her story as told by her parents, uh, who are most often written by Chris Claremont, but occasionally by other people, and you kind of try to read in between the lines and figure out who this person is and where they come from. It tends to tell us a lot about who they are from a particular perspective. Now we could do an episode about Jean with Cyclops or Jean with Wolverine or Jean's friendship with Storm or, you know, there's right. all these places right. and, and they would all teach us something different about this complex character. But we're gonna focus primarily on John and Elaine Gray today, but the, the conversation will continually shift back to Jean who is our feature. Uh, now I've had a chance to do a couple episodes um, we did one on the Drakes, who are Bobby's parents, uh, with Rob Salerno, which was wonderful. I just released one about Storm's parents with uh, with Bar Fox, which completely changed my understanding of Storm. And shortly after this, uh, Carrie Harris and I, you know Carrie now, are are going to be doing one on Kitty Pride's parents. Oh, um, nice! 
And then uh, Noel Reed and I are doing one on Magda, uh, Magneto's uh, uh, estranged wife, if you will. So when I get to do this type <laughs> of research, it's just a wonderful thing because it changes, it changes your understanding. Let me do uh, just a brief intro about the Greys, and then we're going to stop and kind of talk about them along the way. In the very first issue of the X-Men in 1963, Jean walks up to the school in a blue dress and a scarf and a black jacket, black cap on her head, white gloves. She's just lovely. And then Xavier says, come in, my child. I am Professor Xavier. I'm glad you received my message. And Jean replies, it's all, it all seems so strange, Professor, and so mysterious. I was to tell no one but my parents that I'm coming here, and you didn't describe the course of study. What kind of school is this, sir? I have a right to know. And he replies, I think you already suspect, Miss Gray. You see, I can read your thoughts quite clearly. And I know all about your unusual talent. You, Miss Gray, like the other four students at this most exclusive school are a mutant. You possess an extra power, one which ordinary humans do not. That is why I call my students X-Men for extra power. And thus we meet Jean and her parents are referenced as sending her here. And clearly Xavier is messing with all their minds because we're gonna learn later that he's known Jean and her parents for years. Uh, clearly the writers in the 60s did not intend for that to be the story, but part of the complexity of character with continuity is we get to go back and add motivation. So Xavier altering their thoughts to kind of start with a clean slate is a fascinating thing. We know he did this with Iceman and Beast's parents as well. He erased their memories of their child being a mutant, uh, erased Beast's whole town's memories so that they could uh, come together and kind of start fresh in this school. It's an interesting thing but this isn't a Professor X podcast. We'll talk about his motivations. <laughs> I have to say, I was surprised the X for extra power. I assumed it was for the X chromosome because this is genetics. I mean, since we all share that. So or, that for, learning... or for X Xavier. <laughs> okay, yes, that's, oh, yeah, you're right. See? <laughs> but yeah, in that first issue, the first the first episode of my podcast, the title is The X is for Extra Power. Okay. Uh, that's, 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 that's I got to listen to that one, Chad. Thank you. We have a, yeah, we, well, we have a long history and the podcast feels, I, I've been listening to the early episodes because I'm creating these TikTok videos and it's so different. <laughs> it oh, started yeah. out as like four friends on microphones just laughing and now it's like this very professional thing. It's, it's, uh, it's fun to go back. Uh, a few months later, X-Men number five is when we see John and Elaine Gray for the first time. They're on their way to the World's Fair, which clearly sets us in the 1960s. <laughs> and they stop by to see Jean at the school. Xavier's injured and Jean has to change out of her costume quickly so she can keep her secret identity. Uh, she says, as far as any of our parents know, we are all students at a progressive private school. And actually that much is true. But being normal homo sapiens, how could mom or dad understand that their daughter Jean Gray is really Marvel Girl? Jean looks like her mom. She's got red, uh, Elaine's got red hair, sunglasses, or some, not sunglasses, glasses. Her father is taller, full head of gray black hair, a mustache. They meet Jean Gray's four male classmates, including, including Scott Summers, who would be the father of their grandchildren later. Uh, so this is an indelible meeting, but they're told Xavier can't meet with them. Uh, in this little section from X-Men 5, if I read John, will you read Elaine, Stephanie? Sure. John says, uh, when, when they hear they can't meet Xavier, he says, I understand, my boy. I feel I know you all so well. The professor writes to us every week, telling us of your progress. He's certainly a wonderful man, Elaine says. When he first asked if Jean could attend your school, we were a bit hesitant. But then we were contacted by Washington, D.C., recommending your course so highly. We knew it was the best thing for our daughter. And we were so impressed to learn that some of your classes are classified top secret by the government. 
Either Xavier like made some <laughs> letter himself and faked it, or he had Fred Duncan and the FBI uh, do it for him. I, there's <laughs> he needed to have clout, or maybe he just messed with their minds and made them think, "Ooh, we got a letter from Washington D.C." Yes, it wasn't hard then to forge a letter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Elaine reaches for Scott's ruby quartz glasses out of curiosity, but he pushes her hand away because you know I'll kill you if you take my glasses off. <laughs> Um, then the students give the Greys a tour of the building. They make some excuses about why it looks the way it does because they had just had a battle. And then they send the Greys on our way. Elaine puts on her fur coat. John has his hat and his pipe. They get back in the car. Uh, and Elaine says, Such a lovely school. And what fine, clean-cut youngsters. It was a most pleasant visit. John says, We should be proud of our daughter. Imagine winning a free scholarship to a great school like that. Sorry we couldn't say hello to P Professor Xavier. He's such a charming man. John says he ha he was more than he has more than charm, dear. Something about him gives the person a feeling of confidence in him. He almost seems to know what you're thinking. I would like to know what the school's connection with the government is. Perhaps they're teaching a secret special science course. Oh well, I suppose we'll find out someday. <laughs> and then oh my god, Xavier is clearly messing with their braids here, right? Uh, yeah. What are your what are your impressions on on the Greys when we first meet them? They come across as a very educated, kind of well-to-do, happy couple. They're able to afford, although it's a free scholarship, their daughter being sent to a private school. They're she's 16 or 17. They're visiting on visiting her on their way to the World's Fair in their car with their fur coat and pipe. So they <laughs> What are your thoughts on that? Yes, it's, you know, I mean, you've said it all. It's like, where's the apple pie? Um, this is a very clean cut um, couple that, you know, wants the best for their daughter, um, well-to-do or middle-class, um, very innocent, um, but very, lo very loving parents, very loving parents. And but we'll the get... apple pie is missing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get more context on them later. And again, of course, it's added to and added to. But they I have to add, I have to add, Chad, like, First of all, in that scene, you have the cloaked mystery man, like the the, the stereotypical spy in the background with the little hat in the and master <laughs> mastermind. Fuck that guy. Okay, that's mastermind. <laughs> and then I have to note that Scott, being a dumbass, locks himself in the danger room while half of this is going on. <laughs> and has to fight the beast, the, the beast's scenario in the danger room, which I thought was fun actually. <laughs> Uh, Uncanny X-Men 22, uh, Jean's given a day off and she plans to go visit her sister, Sarah, in Albany. Sarah's name is not mentioned, but this is our first mention of Jean having a sister. And then in 2425, she gets a letter from her parents uh, saying she has to go to Metro College and she leaves the school, goes off to Metro College for a while and ends up rejoining in the X-Men. And that's it for the Greys in the 1960s comics. There's kind of behind the scenes, we meet them one time, but we get the impression Jean is loved. She comes from a happy home. She feels duty bound to her parents. Uh, there's more to her than we think is kind of the context until Chris Claremont comes along. Yeah. You get much more serious. <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Do you have do you have any impressions on uh, Jean Grey's portrayal in the 1960s? She is often relegated in the very early books to the I'm the nurse, I'm the cook, I'm the guy or the girl for the guys to flirt with. But right from the first issue, Beast kisses her on the cheek and she like spins him in the air. Like, get the fuck away from me. Don't don't touch me. And her power builds. You also get the impression that Professor X really trusts her. She's the one he confides in. It's uh, yeah. it's an interesting relationship. Look, she's the Smurfette. Okay, she's the one girl <laughs> in the group of guys 
um, that was the thing you throw in the one woman, um, you know, I could relate to that. I was a tomboy, uh, you know, at that stage in my life. So I was the Smurfette. <laughs> um, but like you said, she was not totally passive. Yes. Um, she came, she was somewhat protected and, you know, leaving her parents home was probably a very big deal. But like you said, you do get the sense that there's some, there's some independence there. There's some strength. Um, she has to work through that childhood uh, trauma, um, but totally with you. You know, yeah. she had fire from the beginning. <laughs> uh, fire, pun intended. <laughs> exactly. Phoenix. Uh, I I love Jean right from the start. Uh, she's she's a, a a wonderful character, and I I love that Claremont took her and made her so powerful. He wrote out Beast and Angel and Iceman, and he kept Scott and Jean. And boy, did he have plans for Jean. Claremont loves himself a powerful woman. Yeah, and I can't wait to get to that part. <laughs> well, let's get there next. So uh, we, in X-Men 104 through 106, and this is right before or kind of as the Dark Phoenix saga is starting, where Mastermind has joined the Hellfire Club. He's using his illusion powers to make people think he's this young, buff, kind of 1800s guy. <laughs> and he starts messing with Gene's brain slowly over time. Uh, just before this, they X-Men had their entry where they're in space. They almost burn up in the rocket returning to Earth. And Jean makes the deal. We learn this later. It's the retroactive continuity, but she makes a deal with this cosmic entity called the Phoenix to keep her alive and keep her teammates alive. And we're going to learn later, again, retroactive continuity, that the Phoenix took over Jean's form at that time and actually put Jean's body in a cocoon at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. Okay, whatever. So all, of, all of the <laughs> stories retroactively are now it's the Phoenix living in a mortal form. Yes. Which I'm going to do an episode on the Phoenix Force next year. I've, I've, okay, I've already started it. planning it. And the Phoenix Force, this is not the first time it's taken on a mortal form. It seems that you take this cosmic entity and you put it in a, a form of flesh and blood and it doesn't quite understand emotion or how they work and everything's fire and devastation. And, uh, you know, there, there's there's a lot of interesting components. The idea of putting uh, the godly being that can't understand the mortal mind. Uh, but the way Claremont intended it, this is Gene through this whole section. Uh, it's, it's interesting to note that continuity. Uh, yeah. Thoughts on that before we continue. Um, yeah, I mean, are, are we diving into 104 and 106 or yeah, let's, let's do it. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the Phoenix living in Jean's body, uh, idea. Yeah. You know, I so much stuck with the story that Jean was the Phoenix, right? Like we, this is, that's a whole nother episode on like, you know, I could see why Chris Claremont did not want uh, to resurrect her, did not want to bring her back. And this became this whole complicated thing. You know, I did walk away from the storyline when that happened. Um, it it was a convenient way to just write off that she committed genocide. Um, you know, I don't know how I felt about that. Um, and then it became for me like a soap opera. And I like good stories, but not like devices that just are made to sold. And that, and I love the story, and I love these characters, but. Yeah, I had thought I had feelings about that. The, the Phoenix Saga is arguably the most famous X-Men story, maybe even the most famous Marvel Comics story ever published. And there's this idea, I mean, literally college theses and books have been written about this, this saga. <laughs> but for me, when I read it, there's very much the element, and I have not interviewed Claremont about this as much as I would love to. There's an element of if you let a woman be who she is supposed to be without the constraints of your expectations, she will rise above. She will be more powerful than you can ever give her credit for, but you keep fucking with her 
And right. she is going to, to expand in power and her potential to, uh, to unleash her rage is unlimited. Right. Uh, and it ultimately ends, of course, in tragedy with the phoenix dying on the moon. We're not going to go into that except kind of at an ancillary level. Uh, but it is it is a powerful, incredible story, and it's indelibly part of of Jean Grey forever. They she can't get away from it. She's stuck in this story for the rest of her continuity. Totally. And if if any of your listeners or yourself next time you're in New York City get the chance totally check out the Claremont archives at Columbia University. So I went through them to see what was in Claremont's head as mm. I was crafting my novel, as he was writing these, these, these issues. And it includes letters he's writing to editors, to the, to the illustrators. And it's fascinating. It's just what you said. This character has become too powerful, you know, and, and that was like a big concern. Like this is a, this, she's like a God. Um, and what my interpretation of, of his letters uh, and notes um, as to why he felt that we had to say bye to the Phoenix. Yeah. So highly yeah. recommend uh, if you're a big fan, uh, Columbia's policy is those who have a demonstrated need. Okay. If you're a nerd to me, you have a demonstrated need to see the archives. So Columbia universities, the uh, rare book and manuscript library has them. Okay. I would love to. I would. I would love to take a whole week and go do that. That would be an incredible learning experience. My word, I would. I would adore that. I've reached out to Claremont a couple of times. It's my grand goal to interview him on my podcast someday. I know he's very approachable, but also very busy. So and let me tell uh, you, I tried myself because the <laughs> the script for X Men One Thirty Seven is missing from the archives, mm. and I know it exists because it's on his website. And I very politely um, said. Hey, did you donate? <laughs> this is the one I was looking for, 137. Did you donate it? Didn't hear back. I asked Columbia, I was like, did you misplace it? I didn't get a response. So if anyone finds <laughs> that's gold script, I would love yeah, to yeah. do it. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. I'd okay. So prior to Claremont, we've seen Jean's parents once. They've been referenced a couple of times and we've had a sister reference. I'm going to cover a, a lot really quickly and then let's talk about it. X-Men 104 to 106, we see John and Elaine and Claremont gives them their names. They're reunited with Jean. They meet Professor X. They meet Jean's new roommate, Misty Knight. Uh, they were telling Xavier how they'd always felt like his school was too insular. And keep in mind, they don't know Jean's a mutant at this time. They don't know the truth about the X-Men. And then suddenly fucking Space Princess, Lilandra, like teleports <laughs> in and then Fire Lord bursts through the wall to try to capture her. Uh, Jean changes into the Phoenix in front of the Greys and their, her parents witness this change. And Misty Knight gets them to safety. Jean literally bursts through a Stargate to go on a space adventure. And the Greys are like, what the hell is happening? Who are all these people? Which is a, an entirely <laughs> understandable <laughs> reaction. Good Lord. Uh, we see them again in 108. They're present when Fire Lord uh, and the X-Men and Lilandra, the, 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 the episode ends, but they're, they're present. And then in 109, they're really struggling to adapt to the world of the X-Men. Uh, so again, they knew Jean was a, a telepath, or excuse me, a, a telekinetic and telepath before, and Xavier altered their memories. So this is them getting probably their old memories back. We'll get to right. that stuff in a minute. Right, we'll get, right, exactly. But there's this idea of, holy shit, my daughter is a superhero as well as a mutant, because being a mutant in the Marvel Universe is, is a big thing. So the, the Greys are shocked. Uh, they see the X-Men. They want to speak to Jean, Jean alone. And it almost is behind the scenes when Jean reveals that she's the Phoenix and what happened to her out in space. 
Right. Uh, and then I'm going to go jump to 123 very quickly. Cyclops briefly mentions that he's tried reaching out to Jean's parents because Jean's been missing for a little while, but there's been no luck. So covering a lot of ground very quickly there and focusing on Jean's parents instead of Jean, what are your thoughts on Chris Claremont's portrayal of them as her parents in this story? You know, again, it goes back to be the the, the innocence, the total, oh my God, my daughter, who is that? Um, just totally out of the loop of who their daughter really is. Um, for better or for worse, right? Maybe they can't handle that. But what a heck of a way to find out your daughter is a mutant and not just a mutant, she's now the Phoenix. Yeah, um, yeah. And if you see the Phoenix and how she's drawn, I mean, she's not being Marvel girl that's just looking at you. She's fierce, you know, her face changes. I don't know if this is a little foreshadowing for, you know, when she becomes the dark Phoenix. So I, I, you, you can see the total shock on her parents' face. The, uh, the idea of these human people who reached out to Charles Xavier, had them or had him train their daughter to get her out of trauma, we'll cover that story in a minute, and then their memories are taken. So when you add that context here, the idea of them getting all of their memories back, realizing Professor Xavier has been messing with their mind and watching what Jean has become. They must be in awe. They must be scared. They must right. feel proud. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of things coming up. They've got their daughter back. In other right. words, she, right. she's keeping secrets all this time. And now they know who she really is. I have to add this in and you could edit it out, <laughs> but it's like such Claremont genius that you hear, you begin to see the layering of uh, the foreshadowing of the Shi'ar empire in Jean's life. Cause we're out in space. Then we're, we see Jean with her parents, right? And then we get that like killer, killer line that's just going to just tell you what's going to happen soon, where Jean is now realizing her phoenix power. And she says, um, part of me still wants to get Fire Lord to kill him. My power, it's hitting me like a drug. I've never felt such ecstasy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it just I felt like a genius way of linking uh, Jean's earth life, her family, her parents and how her destiny also is, is going to ultimately lie in space and this power. The Shi'ar Empire, just as a very 30 second recap, is uh, the great colonizers in space, if you will. <laughs> they, they worship a, a pair of gods and they have established this empire where it's we will control you or we will destroy you. And right. they're based in tradition. They're like this bird-like race. They've acquired uh, this massive police force called the Imperial Guard. And we're meant to see Lilandra, their leader at this time, as kind of their hope for change. She's kind of the Queen Elizabeth from the long line of... <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but she's, I mean, a lot of her stories are wrapped up in this idea of trying to change things, but also hold on to tradition. And most of the stories about the Shi'ar are secrets being kept or wars that they're fighting, but they're, they're often seen as the oppressors. And they're indelibly associated with Jean for a couple of reasons. Number one, they are obsessed with the Phoenix Force, largely because they recognize that it is one of the biggest threats to them. And we're gonna we're gonna come back to the Shi'ar a couple of times in this episode in really big ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's jump to 136. We got Chris Claremont, John Byrne. It's now 1980. Uh, Jean is the Phoenix here, and she shows up at the Gray Home in the middle of the night. And this is the first time we meet Sarah, her sister. So John and Elaine, or John, Elaine, and Sarah are there. 
Jean is overcome with dark thoughts about the Phoenix. And she starts reading her family's mind without even really trying, perhaps. It's just so second nature to her. She's not trying to stop herself from using her power any longer. She starts to realize that Elaine is a little bit afraid of her. And Sarah is afraid that her children might turn out to be mutants. Uh, and this is the first mention that she has kids. And the Phoenix lashes out in fear be uh, because of their fear. And she turns a plant into crystal. And she's like, you cross me, I'll do the same thing to you. And John is horrified. And he says, who are you? What are you? In heaven's name, what do you want from us? And the Phoenix replies, I am what I am. I was your daughter. And John yells, no, you're not mine. Not any part of me. I deny you. I cast you out. The Phoenix mm -hmm. makes a powerful warning about death, rushes off to fight the X-Men, uh, she seems to shake off the phoenix for a little while. Jean lands naked in Cyclops' arms a little bit later, and John covers Jean with a blanket, asks Xavier what happened, uh, but the X-Men all kind of just disappear. They're pulled into Shi'ar space again, and this is right before the big trial of Jean Grey. She's literally about to die. Uh, so again, there's a lot going on behind the scenes, not behind the scenes, in the main story with Jean. But when we look at this from her family's perspective, Stephanie, tell me your thoughts, because this this story guts you a little bit. It's a big deal. Yeah, and, and how, we'll, we'll get to that in the end, too, because there's more gutting to be happen, to happen soon. You know, one of the worst things, and I know that's a big statement, but as a child, um, I imagine one of the worst things to hear from your parents is that you're not mine. I reject you. Um, there's a lot of weight to that. I think, don't know as Dark Phoenix, if that means anything to her, um, but it just shows you either how far gone Jean is or how strong their parents uh, feel about that. Um, that, you know, it really struck me, but, you know, they are such loving parents. Um, like I said, you know, how they started out, Jean must be very terrifying for them to say that. Well, I deny you, I cast you out. It seems to me like John sees his daughter as having been taken over by the devil. Yeah. You, you, you are no longer mine. You are something else. She okay. literally threatened their lives. She's, yeah. she's, th this is not the little girl that he loved and nurtured. She's threatened right. to destroy his wife and his other child. Right. I can, under I can understand it as a human reaction. And again, we'll later learn this wasn't Jean. It wasn't the Phoenix. Uh, but it's it's something wearing his daughter's form and he can sense that. But they are right. out of their depth. They're out of their league. It's a, it's a rough story. Um, two issues later is the issue uh, uh, called Elegy. And I know you want to focus a little bit on 137. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I want you to. I'm going to surrender <laughs> it to you in just a second. But the next time we see the, the Grays is two issues later when they're at the funeral of Jean. She died as Phoenix on the moon. And John walks over to check on Scott. Uh, he says, I know how much you loved each other. And then Lilandra gives them a holographic, hollow empathic matrix crystal to keep in their home that will project an image of Jean whenever they want to see her, which mm -hmm. is this very lovely kind of sad tribute because the Shi'ar are kind of responsible for Jean's death. And here's Lilandra saying, let me make a peace offering. Tell us about X-Men 137. Uh, that's the issue before the funeral in between these two that I just covered. Tell us what happens and your thoughts on it. Yikes. So, you know, basically the gene, the Phoenix um, is being called to pay uh, for the consequences of what she did as dark Phoenix, which is consume a star. And um, as a consequence of that, uh, billions of lives were lost. 
uh, in the galaxy. The poor um, broccoli so, people. <laughs> yeah, they were broccoli people. The Bahari, Bari, something. The, I, I, something the, the, the Bari. The Bari. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. <laughs> it's like something like that. Um, so they are taken. I don't know if it's the the Shi'ar. They're taken to the to the moon. Um, and there's supposed to be this fight, like this fight off between the X-Men, you know, are we going to beat them? You know, if you can survive, then you live, something like that. Um, and in the process, um, Jean, who has like mental dampers on to, to prevent the Phoenix Force from coming back, um, begins to realize that she can't control it, that it will come back. Um, and knowing her potential for uh, cosmic destruction, um tricks scott and the x-men um and trips an old Cree device in the blue area of the moon and ultimately commits suicide mm -hmm. ultimately and yells scott as her last words um it's such i mean it's an epic issue you go through the minds and the hearts of the x-men you get you get to go into Nightcrawler's head and his Catholic guilt. How, how then can I forgive Gene? Yeah. And everyone trying to say, where can we place the Gene, the innocent Genie Red, um, with having committed genocide? Um, so it's it's a beautiful, wonderful comic that explores, um, you know, what are the consequences for your behavior? And it ends with um, the Watcher and. Um, uh, I'm totally blanking and I wrote a whole story or the recorder. Thank you. Yeah. The yeah. Recorder. Duh, Stephanie, you wrote a story on this. Um, and, and this is the line that gets me. Um, you know, why did Jean have to die? And the answer given because she was human. And you sit and you think about it. Some of us wanted her to be something more, but in the end, she rather die human. Um, just an epic, um, epic uh x-men issue i gotta say stuff about that crystal that crystal because we see it we'll see it again and again in a few issues it's it's just so fascinating because how do we remember someone when is an object something that haunts us rather than remind us and are the dead really dead if we remember them you know this is not just an image of gene if you hold the crystal you actually can feel her essence right. and as a little funny side note um, when I was getting my Chautauqua Janus Prize for my story, Jean, that year, so in Chautauqua, every year they have a theme and they make a banner. And the year I won for Jean was a rising phoenix. So there was, there was like these banners with a rising phoenix everywhere as I'm getting this prize. What a and bizarre happenstance. That's incredible. I'm, I'm going to send you the freaking picture. And But then it kept following me because then we traveled to Canada and I we got out of the car and I'm standing under the Phoenix restaurant you know so I'm like the only thing left now is I'm gonna find because I just have an active imagination the um how the how do we call it the hollow empathic matrix crystal right I had that in my head and I kid you not Chad we go to this artisan's glass store and there are these glass orbs I'm like this is it I found it <laughs> maybe if I touch it I don't know. Gene will come out. I have no idea. And I, I asked the owner, I said, what are these, these crystals, these glass crystals? And I'm holding it. And <laughs> I didn't know this was a thing. He's like, in those glass crystals are the ashes of my aunt. I said, excuse me? He's like, yes, each crystal has, you know, we cremate and, you know, that one has my, my friend's cat. 
but there are these memory crystals for those that want to honor the dead. And it was an eerie full circle to my gene story. Um, uh, and, 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 and this crystal will play a large role in, in, in other issues on how we remember Jane. But a yeah. strange little story to share. <laughs> Just eerie. No, no. When you're working on something so indelibly and you find these reminders of it, it's almost like you feel guided in a direction. When I made my documentary that was happening, things kept happening that would push me in particular directions. And my, mine is about a, a gay hate crime. And I found a I found myself consistently inspired and moving in new directions. I know what that's like. It's it's right? almost eerie, and you find so much of yourself in these stories. The the uh, the part we just covered with Jean's parents, her mother being afraid of her, her daughter or Sarah being afraid her children might turn out like her. Those those seem to be a couple of the things that push Jean or the Phoenix over the edge. My, my own family is afraid of me, but she's literally on fire in front of them. Uh, it's, it's, it's a startling story. She threatens them, but then is afraid or, or stunned when, they, um, when they're afraid of her. I don't know. There's something very heart-wrenching about that connection. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I, I think too much, and you, know, you can have a whole discussion on another show of Gene and Cyclops. So much slash too much of Gene going over the edge, I think is tied to losing Cyclops. Sure. Um, you know, it was when Mastermind, when she thought he killed Cyclops, that totally warped her head uh, into the Dark Phoenix. And then I'm sure then the family was just another final push to keep her there. If you uh, listen to the Mastermind trial, I fully blame the Phoenix saga. On <laughs> yeah, no, it is. It's all him. <laughs> totally. Creepy. He's the worst. Um, we get the Greys again in one in Uncanny X Men one forty five one forty six, where Storm visits their home. We learn that uh, John works as a professor emeritus at Bard College. He teaches literature. They live in the quote unquote sleepy hamlet of Annandale on Hudson. Have you ever been to Annandale on Hudson? I, I have not. I'm intrigued now. <laughs> it sounds cute. Uh, and inside we see that crystal, the 3D image of Jean Grey, but the Greys have been kidnapped by Miss Locke, who is the, uh, I'll do a Patreon on Miss Locke one day. Woof. She's, uh, she's crazy. She's a crazy lady. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's kidnapped a lot of the X-Men's supporting cast. Uh, Ileana Rasputin, Candy Southern, Amanda Sethman, uh, Stevie Hunter, Moira McTaggart. Uh, and uh, they're soon rescued and it's fine. And then Claremont a few years later, Gene's not back, but he's doing, working on this black and white title called Bizarre Adventures. And he gives us an X-Men issue. There's a Nightcrawler story and an Iceman story, but the one that is <clears throat> indelible is Bizarre Adventures number 27 in 1985. He gives us an unexpectedly lovely story about Sarah at Gene's, Gene's grave. This is gold, gold. It's gold. I, uh, I, did this, uh, I did this issue on my podcast with Derek Kinskin and Maria Wolf and uh, just the, the like really taking the time to explore it. You know how we do issue yeah. breakdowns in my pod and talk about them. It, uh, it, is, it, it just got me in my heart space and has not left. Um, opening page, gorgeous art. We see Sarah kneeling at Jean's grave. Uh, do you want to read Sarah's speech as she kind of talks to herself at Jean's grave? Sure. Hiya, kid. It's me again. I don't know why I keep coming back. I mean, it isn't as if you're actually buried here. You're not really buried anywhere. You died on the moon. Your body reduced to atoms scattered across the cosmos. Nothing in this place contains even the slightest part of you. And yet, you are here. I feel it. We were as much best friends as sisters. We could talk about anything. 
We trust each other, looked out for each other. I'm scared, Jean. Tommy is 11 years old. Soon he'll reach puberty. Suppose he changes the way you changed. Suppose he, like you, is a mutant. Your powers killed you, Jean. Will they kill my son? So sad. And this idea that Sarah has formed that her powers were the thing that killed Jean. They were the thing that corrupted her. She's formed this idea about what a mutant is. And we have to go back to queer analysis. We could do a whole podcast on this alone. But the idea of parents worrying that their kids are going to grow up gay because they see how gay people suffer. Right. Uh, gay people who died of AIDS or gay people who took their lives because of oppression. Parents right. who then worry, if you're gay, you're going to have a harder life. If you're trans, you're going to live with more guilt and pain. Right. Uh, my own mother, after I came out, told me I was always afraid that you would turn out gay. But instead of creating safety around it, she then reinforced the ideas that I had to be straight instead. So, uh, so watching that Sarah uh, analogy here is is a lot to kind of reckon with. Uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? No, I totally read it in the same way. I mean, these are the beauty of comic books that it could be the story that it is on the surface, but it could speak to a lot of marginalized groups, particularly um uh queer gay uh feeling like you know what i know what this is um and i recognize this as as being as being harmful yeah maybe and coming from a loving place but being harmful in, in the end well and sarah's right because anti-mutant stuff will kill her and her right. children are both mutants and it does not end well for any of the great <laughs> we'll get to it just a minute so her fear <laughs> Her fear is certainly not unfounded in this story. But we flash back here to two years prior, right after Jean had just come home to her family and come clean about being the Phoenix. So we saw that story already. Uh, Jean and Sarah are in bathing suits. They're spending the day together. They're going to go meet Scott. And uh, Sarah's husband's name is Paul Bailey, although we've literally never seen him on panel. Right. Uh, he's still alive in the comics, so far as I know. Uh, the the Gray family has been slaughtered. Spoilers for those that Spoiler! are. Spoiler! We didn't get there, <laughs> Dad. Hello. But we've we've <laughs> never seen Paul. He's never been uh, on the page, as far as I know. Uh, these two are close, and they are going sailing together. And some guys flirt with them, and Jean knocks them in the water. Uh, Sarah opens up about her fear that her kids might be mutants, uh, and then they are attacked by fucking Atuma, who is this undersea <laughs> awful guy. I love this character, actually. He's he's the worst. He's he's the epitome of just gross masculinity in this story. He has captured these women literally to be breeding stock. Thought like, is not essential to bearing children. <laughs> That's my favorite line. <laughs> he dresses them in like metal bikinis and is like, Gene, you're a mutant, so your kids will be amazing. And Sarah, you might have the potential of being a mutant. We'll get there. But before we go there, we get another flashback. It's 10 years previous. And we see or, uh, we see 10-year-old Jean, who is not 10 years previous, more than 10. Uh, she's 10 years old and she's a tomboy. Uh, tell us what happens to this day. John has just left for work. Jean's, uh, Jean's mom, Elaine, is kind of hanging out inside. And she says, why don't you go outside and play for a minute? Yeah, go out and play, but don't get hit by a car. And remember, remember, there's a blind curve in front of our house. She says exactly. And I think they're playing ball or frisbee or something. And uh, Jean's friend says, "Oh, I'll go get it." And Jean yells, "No, be careful of the car!" And unfortunately, her best friend gets hit by a car and is lying, uh, dying on the road. And this is where Jean's mutant powers kick in because she enters her best friend's head as she's dying um and then her best friend really does die while Jean is uh psychically locked into her head 
So a horribly traumatic experience on two fronts, her best friend died, but she experienced the death together with her in her head. And the consequence for this will be she can't get anyone out of her head. And the result will be I need an empty room and not be around people. Yeah, she becomes kind of almost catatonic and distant. And as a parent, I mean, we could spend an hour talking about this. I am scared almost every time I turn my back because you have parents who so often, like I looked away for just, I, I my, my child, uh, my youngest, when they were about two, uh, I was shopping and I was like getting something off the shelf and they leaned over the side of the shopping cart and fell out and landed on their head, like thunked like a watermelon. Oh, yeah. And I remember oh. like, <gasps> And it, turned, yeah. were, it turned out they were fine, but those moments as a parent are so scary and yes. they turn their back for a second and then their daughter suffers this unspeakable trauma, which they can't even put into words. Yes. And they, they take her to all these psychiatrists who try to help. And uh, they finally reach out to Charles Xavier because he's an expert on these things. And they sure. learn, uh, they <laughs> learn he's a mutant and uh, she works with Xavier for years. It's kind of his first consistent pupil, even before he's in the wheelchair, he's working with Jean. Uh, and in time, he suggests that Gene come to his school and then he wipes their minds. Uh, so that's kind of the story. Uh, this this idea of Gene growing up with this trauma and, and Professor X like repressing her powers so that she can handle it is brilliant. It's so good. Uh, I love it, love it, love it. It's indelible. It's the place that our understanding of Gene begins as a character, frankly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, even it, it makes me and I certainly can relate in this way. I mean, you don't have to be a telepath, but if you're just simply a person that has a great deal of empathy, it requires a lot of skill to not constantly absorb all the emotions that you may feel or think you feel uh, of others around you. So I think, you know, you don't have to be a mutant to appreciate that um, there are some things we can do and coping mechanisms to not allowing the entire world to inhabit our headspace. I am an empath and I work as a therapist and people want me to be on all the time. And I know what that is like. So I'm glad I'm not a telepath. That would be <laughs> No, it would be, yes, bonkers. <laughs> um, so we flash back to that scene where Atuma has kidnapped. This is two years before Jean dies. Uh, Sarah and Jean have been transformed by Atuma. Their skin is blue. They've been dressed in bikinis. Jean is working to keep Sarah calm while also battling Atuma. She changes into the Phoenix. Uh, and uh, she eventually summons some dolphins to get them to safety, which is <laughs> fantastic. Uh, and then she, uh, after they've escaped, she uses her cosmic powers to rewrite Sarah's genome to make her an air breather again. Later, when teenage Jean trans, uh, goes into the future uh, during the Brian Michael Bendis stuff, yeah. in, in X-Men Blue, I think it is, the teenage gene is destroyed. She gets uh, inhabited by the poisons who are like the anti-venoms aliens. And she literally remakes her body from like spare molecules in the galaxy. Like this character is very powerful. <laughs> we see yes. this idea yes. that you can rewrite your genome, which is amazing. And then Jean erases Sarah's memories of this event. And Sarah loses these memories until Jean dies. Uh, thoughts on that section of the story. It's a big, this is kind of our first time seeing Sarah and Jean together or Sarah at all, frankly. Yeah, no, it goes to that big question. I mean, would you want that power, right? Like, would you want to erase memories and <laughs> reorder molecules? Um, or do they have a place um, for us to just be a, a different person going forward? I mean, we see what happened here with, in Sarah's case, that yeah, Jean did erase these memories, but they came back when Jean died. So they actually weren't really erased. 
Um, these are big questions. These are big questions. Like, would you want that power? Yeah. Uh, Sarah uh, is back at the grave then at the end of the story and she's crying. Uh, do you want to read again? Tell us kind of how she feels as she's kind of saying goodbye to Jean here. Sure. I'm totally looking for where that I'll be very proud to no, know. I don't feel so apprehensive, yeah, right? Okay. <laughs> I don't feel so apprehensive anymore. If my children are mutants and they turn out to be a fraction of the person you were, I'll be very, very proud. I love you, Jean. I miss you. Wherever you are, I pray you're at peace. I hope you're happy. I think that so long as someone remembers you with love, you'll always be a part of our lives, that you'll never truly die. It's so sad. You may know more about this than me, but my understanding is that Claremont was setting Sarah up because they were getting ready to launch a second X-Men title, which was X-Factor. And the plan was to reunite the original X-Men, Cyclops, Beast, Iceman, uh, Angel, and then Gene. And they, uh, Claremont was very opposed to them resurrecting Gene. So he proposed Sarah. And my understanding is he wanted to give her the power to activate and to detect latent mutants, people who did not have active power sets. Huh. He was going to bring her into this story because we've, uh, we, we didn't want Jean back. And they ended up bringing Jean back and using her instead. Uh, did you know, do you know much of that history? I, to I totally don't, but that, that would make them, I would, that would make a lot of sense. I mean, I do know based on, on the archives that he did not want Jean back. Um, I don't remember anything uh, about Sarah, but that makes sense. Put another redhead in. I mean, <laughs> well, and Jean's, <laughs> and Jean's sister. So we get a right, lot to explore right. there. And Sarah's, this is the most feature we ever get about Sarah was this Bizarre Adventures issue. And, and uh, really owed to black and white. I mean, yeah, I like me some color, but this was just so beautiful in black and white. I enjoyed it. It's so pretty. It's really, yeah. really beautiful. The original. Um, I think they did a reissue in color. But if you can see the original hmm. in black and white, I think I, I'm pretty sure on the Marvel Unlimited app, there's a color version. I've never read the color version. I don't okay. know if I want well, to. Well, now I'm going to go like, look. Maybe you got to edit that out. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm going to go look. <laughs> I feel like it would spoil the story. It's so pretty. Me too. Uh, it, I love it as is. Okay, I'm going to cover some ground really quickly again, cover a few things. Uh, X-Men Origins Jean Grey number one by Sean McKeever. Uh, and not only uh, are we reviewing that issue on my podcast in the near future, but I'm also having Sean on as a guest in the next oh, couple awesome. of weeks, so I'm awesome. really excited. Uh, we see a flashback to when Charles Xavier first met Jean. He's helping her realize after her trauma that she's a telepath. Elaine opens up to Charles and says, for the last two years, ever since the accident, it's been a living nightmare. She screams in pain whenever we take her anywhere. We had to empty her room to keep her from hurting herself every time she, and John interrupts, listen, Xavier, we've had our gene see every sort of psychologist, psychiatrist, neurologist, and faith healer, phony astrologist you can imagine. You're the first one to ever, to even get her attention. Sarah simply says, I want my sister back. And as Jean starts making progress with Charles, her family is thrilled uh, Xavier, of course, then has to wall off her telepathic power. So when she joins the X-Men, she's only telekinetic. So we're just seeing what we already know a little bit more fleshed out. Uh, in Uncanny X-Men Minus One, which I am literally recording an episode this afternoon about this oh issue, uh, which <laughs> is lovely. Guy. It's a double podcast day. I like to do those <laughs> once in a while. Uh, we see uh, John tucking Jean in before the X-Men are formed. He's so pleased she's recovering after working with Charles. Uh, he uses the same words to Tucker in every night. 
Uh, and then he says, I, I've always thought you were perfect and you can't get any better than that, which is such a cute dad thing to say to his daughter. Uh, and then he th he's, again thinks about all the specialists he tried to help her, uh, but Charles is the only one effective. Uh, let's switch the conversation briefly to Rachel Summers. Okay. Uh, Claremont gives us in Uncanny X-Men 199. He's been on the book for like 10 years now. I don't know how long. It's been, it's been a long time, over a hundred issues of the X-Men. And he gives us Rachel Summers, the daughter of Jean Grey and Scott Summers from an alternate future. Days of Future Past, brilliant storyline that shows us the potential of mutants being in concentration camps. It's gorgeous. We'll get there on the podcast eventually. Rachel is a child who grew up. She's the daughter of Cyclops and Jean, but she grows up in this abject, awful world where she's forced to hunt down mutants by Captain Ahab. Uh, she's made into a hound. And she comes back into the into the past and has joined the X-Men. Uh, are you a Rachel Summers fan? All right. So here's a complicated answer to that. I was rooting for Rachel, right? Um, just so she was she's so tragic. And the complexity of Rachel for me is it's it was it's, it was really hard to see on the page something that is not as easily veiled in metaphor. And what am I saying with that? You see Rachel who is branded. She's branded as a mutant for what she is. She has scars. She's wearing a collar on her neck like a dog. She's treated as not being human. Um, you know, I grew up with, uh, on my dad's side, Holocaust survivors. And, you know, those narratives weighed, they were unspoken, an unspoken heaviness. Uh, in the heart, right? Like in the house. And seeing your grandparents branded with numbers on their arms and, you know, getting flippant answers as to why they had numbers branded on their arms and how come you, there's no uh, side of the family. And they're like, because they were put in ovens, like we would get answers like that. It, it's It's harder to read. It hits home more when I read Rachel's character because it's not... Uh, you know, it's not as veiled. Um, and then when you get into the whole alternate futures, uh, I don't know. Like it's, you know, we'll talk when you get to the cable part. I mean, forget it. We're going to be here until 7 p.m. Chad. <laughs> like, forget that shit. <laughs> it's like, I get it. Um, it kind of, you know, are you really their son? Excuse me. Are you really their daughter? Um, it's a different reality. So I'm a fan in that I felt her pain and I wished her happiness, but I also didn't want anyone else wearing the Phoenix too. <laughs> right. Um, uh, so Rachel in the comics has just come out as gay. She's now in a relationship with Betsy. Oh, real? Mm -hmm. okay. Okay. So uh, she's a character. When you talk about branded for being who you are, there's, there's more element. We'll do more on Rachel in the future. Okay, as well. But the, one of the interesting things, and I'm going to cover this in just like three sentences because we do not have time to get into the Summers family yeah. nonsense of it all. Yes. Mr. Sinister loves the genetic potential of Cyclops and Jean Grey together. And he uh, creates a clone of Jean after Jean dies. Her name is Madeline Pryor. This is another Claremont character who is brilliant and tragic. Cyclops marries her. They have a child. She goes mad, quote unquote, as she makes a deal with demons and is ultimately killed and sacrificed, although she's back in the comics now too. That child gets infected by apocalypse with a techno-organic virus sent to the far future to be raised. So Cyclops loses his child. That character becomes Cable, who is the time-traveling leader of X-Force. 
he is cloned. So uh, this is another, uh, <laughs> they have a cloned daughter and a cloned grandson. Uh, that character is Strife, who is the worst. Uh, and then we also have uh, X-Man, who is the alternate reality version of Cable, who's genetically engineered by Mr. Sinister in the Age of Apocalypse, who's also been on our Earth for a long time. <laughs> so we get this idea where there's this multiverse and characters can cross over, but Rachel and some of these other characters, Strife, Cable, Madeline, uh, X-Men are all characters that have been around. They're part of the comics. We will not talk about Vulcan and Adam X. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's a brief summary. But we do see uh, Rachel forming an emotional relationship with John and Elaine over time. In X-Men uh, 199, uh, she's kind of hiding outside their home. She watches them drive away. You know, that hey, that's my grandma and grandpa. In 201, she breaks into their house and steals their memory crystal because she wants to remember her mom. She's in a okay. world where her mom doesn't exist. Okay, Chad. She didn't steal it. All right. We got, she breaks it. Okay. Cause that's the shit kids do. Oh, let me just <laughs> crash and break mom's essence. All right. Like, I don't know. I, I, that panel, it was broken. There was smoke coming out of it. Cause that's what the shit kids do. <laughs> Absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. Then X Factor's relaunched. Jean Grey's body is discovered at the bottom of Jamaica Bay. She joins X Factor. She keeps her existence a secret from her parents, and she does not meet Rachel for a while. She's uh she's building another relationship with Scott, who was married to her clone and has a baby, and there's all kinds of shit going on. That's uh those are conversations for another time. But in X Factor 12. Gene and Scott go to Sarah's home because nobody's been able to reach Sarah for a while. And they place, they find everything missing, her clothes, her toys, her books, she and her kids are gone. And they play a, a message on the answering machine that says, you got our warning, beauty lover, too bad you didn't listen. X Factor ought to, ought, ought to go after your kind too. And this is, uh, this is confusing because the X-Men in X Factor are posing as anti-mutant uh, people who are humans hunting down mutants because they want to gather mutants in order to secretly help them. And I, anyway, and then yeah. uh, they say X Factor ought to go after your kind too instead of leaving the dirty work for us. Bye-bye, uh, beauty lover, they say. Um, so, and then a firebomb blows up. Sarah's home is destroyed. We literally never see her again. She was basically in that one issue. And then we get this idea that they're hunting her down. Uh, Sarah's been hinted to be a mutant. She has mutant children. Uh, the X-Men also notice in Uncanny X-Men 215 that Sarah's home's on fire. They see this, uh, this image. In Uncanny X-Men Annual 14 is when Jean visits her parents' home. She finally has this kind of reunion. Uh, she says, River Road, Annandale on Hudson, New York, a half mile from the main campus of Bard, Bard College. Excuse me, these are the captions, not Jean speaking. Right, right. All her life, Jean Grey's know, known this old stone house, watched her dad conduct tutorials, made big sister Sarah's life totally nuts, hung out and had adventures with her best friend, Annie Richardson. In the fullest, richest sense of the word, this is home. And she examines that crystal in the home again. I want to know who put it together, okay? Because it was broken. <laughs> Off panel, like somebody put it together. It Lelandra showed back up and said, hey, let me fix it for you. <laughs> Uh, X Factor 27 in 1988, we have Louise Simonson, John and Elaine are watching the news and they see Madeline Pryor on the news and she looks like Jean and it's Christmas day and there is a knock on the door and Jean is standing there in her red and yellow X Factor uniform and they embrace her tightly. They spend hours together catching up over everything. It's Christmas and she's finally saying, hey guys, I'm alive again. Uh, I'll, re I'll read Jean here. Will you read Elaine? Sure. Jean says, mom, how is Sarah? I saw her on TV giving a pro-mutant speech. 
I know her house was firebombed, but she and her family escaped. Where is she? We were in England when it happened. We found out too late. And then John, will you read him as well? John, there were no bodies. We thought at first that your sister had gone into hiding, but she hasn't contact contacted us. And now, well, the police are looking. We keep hoping. Jean says, evil forces surround mutants these days and their families, it seems. I've endangered you by coming here. Look, I love you, but I dare not come here again. Not till all of this mess is straightened out. I'll find Sarah, mom, I promise. So you get this image of John and Elaine. Their daughter has died. Their other daughter is missing. Her home's been blown up. Her grand, their grandchildren are gone. I'm picturing them as just wounded, calloused trauma survivors at this point. And then Jean shows up <laughs> on their door, spends a few hours, and then says, I got to go. Bye. I mean, yeah, this is probably where in my my life I'm like, I can't anymore. I mean, like people realistically cannot live with this amount of trauma, uh, this well, amount of soap opera. But they people do, do yeah. all the they time. They do. They do. I know. They do. I know. I know. I know. Um, but like, really, you're going to, hey, knock, knock. Merry Christmas. I'm back from the dead. Um but at the same time, um, they're used to a world of mutants and superheroes. So maybe they have a different um, a different mindset. But these are definitely uh, people that are hurting and have seen a lot um, and have experienced a lot. So then uh, we flash forward a while and Inferno happens. This is Uncanny X-Men 240 to 243, X-Factor 37 through 39. Uh, it's a Chris Claremont, Louise Simon story, Simonson story. This is a favorite for many X-Men fans, one of their top favorite stories of all time. It's crazy. It takes over the whole Marvel universe. Uh, Madeline Pryor has made a deal with the devils of Limbo and has become the Goblin Queen. And she is mad with power and inanimate objects all over the city are coming to life and demons are swarming. John and Elaine go to Jean's grave. And what happens to them? <laughs> Oh, they are turned into horrible little goblins. <laughs> Madeline decides that this is like a fraction of what I'm going to actually do to Jean Grey. So yeah, they're goblins. Madeline, the clone, is tired of living Jean's life or living in her shadow. She's like, fuck everything. Right. I will sacrifice my child. I will murder your parents. I will destroy everything. Lilith. It's the Lilith. Mm-hmm. Tell the us Lilith. the story. Tell us the Lilith story quickly. I don't, no, don't be like, all right, I'm not like an <laughs> expert, but the idea that Adam had a first wife and her name was Lilith. She had red hair, actually, um, from the stuff that I've read. Um, and um, I kid you not. And one of the things I read, you know, she liked to be on top, right? <laughs> she wasn't a passive missionary uh, position uh, wife. Um, she actually had a say. She had a voice. Um, and she was rejected for that. And then Adam got Eve, the more passive. Um, uh, so, you know, Lilith, you can be compared, you know, you can make a correlation between Lilith and the Sumerian um, goddess. Um, I'm forgetting her name, Inanna, or if, that, if that's the priestess. I mean, you go back and you can see this motif of the the woman that's been scorned the woman that kills children the woman that comes to you and seduces men in your sleep and you see her do this um i don't know was alex summers acting of his right mind when he was with her you know because we get a little incestuous summers <laughs> not really incest i just i just insular. host i just hosted the trial of havoc a couple of days ago it's not released yet but that's part of our conversation <laughs> okay good we'll save it for that um 
but yeah, the the idea of this woman that is very free in her sexual sexuality, bloodthirsty, uh, and 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 vengeance. There's a whole psychology if you're into that on you know embracing your Lilith side, and every woman goes through this phase, and a woman scorned, and you know, or and this is where it gets interesting. We talk about Jean Grey and clones. Is it just the flip side of your womanhood? Like, is this just your shadow? And and this is what messes with your head. I mean, it's a clone of Gene. Is it Gene? Is it its own person? You know, we can have a whole discussion on that. So John and Elaine are demons. They are flanking uh, Madeline for a while. Mr. Sinister gets involved. X Factor gets involved. Uh, they are used to taunt Gene, who you know sees her parents being wounded or forced to fight. It's it's a it's a scary story. Ultimately, as Inferno ends, they are changed back. And they have survived this great danger. And we jump forward. I'm going to cover this part very quickly. In X-Factor 35, we meet, I love this character, although she's nonsense. We meet Nanny, who is a woman in an egg suit obsessed with killing parents who are unfit in her life. (laughs) And then raising uh, their their children as like an army of little like superpowered babies that serve her. Uh, She's phenomenal have you read hellions under zeb wells i have not god it's good nanny is one of the feature characters and she stands out as there's an image of her getting drunk in her egg suit and chasing mr sinister with a broken (laughs) bottle like saying time to die motherfucker like okay no i have to (laughs) she's nuts she's nuts anyway she has gathered a team of orphans some of whom she murdered the parents themselves uh, and she's formed a team called the Lost Boys and Girls. And two of them are uh, Joey and Galen Bailey. Now, Sarah initially called her son Tommy. We learn his name is Joey. Maybe his name is like Joseph Thomas or something. We don't know. But they are part of this group of, of, uh, of little powered kids that have to fight the characters. They are redheaded. They, uh, <laughs> they have shirts that say number one and two. They share a code name, which is Shatterbox. Uh, so this is the hint that they are mutants because Nanny yeah. tends to recruit mutant children. And they go to the orphanage that Mr. Sinister runs, which is where Cyclops grew up. And they are liberating mutant children, which includes Nathan Summers, who is weirdly their uncle, but he's also a baby here. It's a... It's a no, no, too much. <laughs> anyway, uh, it, wait, is he their uncle? He's their mother. He's their aunt's son it was their cousin it's their cousin excuse okay, me okay yes the cousin cable would yeah. be their cousin except it's through a clone so technically not <laughs> all right moving on moving on uh they fight and gene recognizes the kids are sarah's and they refuse to believe that sarah could be dead uh, X-Factor 40, uh, X-Factor goes to the funeral for Madeline Pryor, uh, John and Elaine are there, uh, uh, Elaine grabs baby Nathan, this is their grandson, and she says, oh, Scott, let me hold him, he's such an adorable little fellow, you know, since his mother was a genetic duplicate of our daughter, he really is our grandchild, he's something wonderful that's come from this terrible tragedy, he looks so much like my other grandchildren, little Galen, and Jean, have you still learned nothing about their whereabouts or your sisters? Scott promises that they will find them. They later save Joey and Galen. uh, And then they're basically turned over to John and Elaine to raise. And these little kids have been through trauma. They say, Nanny's said we didn't even have a mom. We don't need a mom. But they are saved. And John and Elaine take in their grandchildren, which is this lovely, like, yay, we have some happiness, finally. Uh, Any thoughts on this story with these kids? 
yeah, no, totally adorable. Of course, the grandparents, I was, I'm happy that they took them in. You know, a little side gene commentary. I mean, Jean's uh, reflection in this is very much consistent with her putting Scott's life and needs above hers. Um, there's a quote here where she's reflecting that, um, you know, she chose to focus on saving Scott's child versus her niece and nephew. Yeah. Um, you know, in the issue prior to this or a few ones before, um, you know, she's like, go Scott live, go be with Maddie, you know, and, you know, and, you know, you see this later with Emma Frost and go live Scott. So you get a little bit of this uh, gene being the putting other people's needs above hers. Um, that stuck out to me. Next time we see them is that wedding of Scott and Jean, X-Men volume two, number 30. It's that famous wedding issue. Uh, the kids are on the front. They're like the little ring bear. Elaine helps Jean get her dress on in the issue. She remembers her own wedding day. It's super cute. There's a lovely exchange between Jean and Elaine, which is rare. Uh, Jean says, mom, you can drop that Annandale on Hudson, reserved faculty <laughs> wife, <laughs> let it down, you know, and Elaine says, I'll just wait to make sure you don't trip walking down the aisle before I do, if that's all well and good with you, young lady. She, yes, ma'am, that's fine. You're one in a million, you know that. And Elaine says, actually, I was thinking the same about you. And while most mothers can say that about their daughters, I have the genetics to back it up. And then she is married and it's super cute. Did you like that issue, the wedding issue? Yeah, I, I think this was probably when I took a break from comics because it doesn't stand out in my head like you would think after all the years that I'm like oh they're going to be together um but I have zero memory of like running and getting this I own it this issue but like um it's lovely and it was finally after the years of tormenting us between those two and their romance <laughs> So we get this idea that Sarah has been kidnapped. She's missing for years. And it's just like a plot point in the X-Men. I used to be part of this like database in the early 90s when I was, or mid 90s when I was uh, a, a high schooler. And there was like this X-Men unresolved plot lines list. And where, like, where the fuck is Sarah Gray was always one of the big things on there. Fabian Nicieza gives Funny. us the answer in X-Men volume 236. Uh, the, fa the phalanx who are... Oh, they're hard to describe in a few sentences. The yes. Technarchy, you guys know Warlock and Magus. Uh, there are these, it's like a living techno virus that you turn into like machine components and you need to absorb things. To, it's the Borg, yeah. There you <laughs> the go, Borg. the Borg. Uh, yeah. But we, we very quickly learn, unless it's a ruse, because we don't see it happen, but uh, Stephen Lang, who's part of the Phalanx, uh, taunts the X-Men with the knowledge that he has absorbed Sarah Gray or Sarah Bailey into his form. Uh, she's become a phalanx. She gave up her life. And he even shows an image of Sarah uh, through the phalanx, which again, could be lying. Right. He, she says, Jean, don't let find Jean help my sister. And then she is gone. So we get this kind of behind the scenes, unsatisfactory resolution to Sarah's disappearance. And uh, a few issues later, Uncanny X-Men 322, Jean gives the news to her parents about Sarah's loss. And uh, John says, basically, like, we knew she was gone. Not the specifics, but, and here's a quote. When, when a parent loses a child, it's as if you wake up one morning to discover a piece of your soul is missing. Jean cries, and they, they remind her of the day she left for school. Uh, Sarah's hugging Jean. We get this lovely flashback. She says, I realize I'm being selfish, Jean, but I'm your sister. I'm allowed. Jean says, but according to the professor, I can use my mutant ability to help other people. And Sarah says, 
And I accept that. So I'll make you a deal. You promise to use your powers to save the world. I promise to love you no matter what. And John back on the swing comforts Jean and says, you kept your word, Jean. I'm not sure she's looking down on us right now, wanting you to know she's keeping up her end of the promise, no matter what. Lovely resolution. Totally, totally. Do you have any thoughts on this story? Yeah, you know, it's comics. I mean, I would say not really. It's like, is she really gone? Um, I did feel I got closure, though, with that that scene with Jean and her dad in the swings. Um, So good going there. I know. Uh, I know. We've still got stuff to cover. Are we okay on time? Yeah. No. We're we're good. We're good. We're making up time. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna cover again. I'm gonna cover some things quickly, and then we have one big story we need to talk about as we uh, end in abject tragedy. X Men Volume Two Fifty One. Uh, John and Scott visit John and Elaine's home. Gene and Scott. Excuse me. Gene gets frustrated because Scott is kind of testing Joey and Galen, the kids, to see if they have any mutant powers. Uh, and Jean just wants them to have a normal childhood. I, I want them to be innocent. Don't take that away from them. And in the background, we get the news that Graydon Creed is running for president. Uh, we also see them very briefly in a visit in X-Men versus Brood number one. Uh, X-Man number 30. This is the <laughs> this is the alternate reality version of their grandson. Uh, complicated. But Scott had, uh, we don't need to cover all of that, but X-Man knows uh, that the Greys have been attacked by uh, Bastion, who is a robot guy that hates mutants. That's that's really all you need. And uh, he's he's <laughs> taking control of the government and Sentinels have been weaponized to hunt down mutants, basically. And some of them come after the Greys. Right. And X-Man has been sent to try to help them uh, we see Joey and Galen featured a little bit, which is rare, but he ultimately saves them and sends them back to John and Elaine. So read that issue if you'd like to know more. Finally, in X-Men uh, Volume 2, number 165, Rachel is officially introduced to John and Elaine. They have get an ad- tissues out. Get your tissues out. Uh, they have an adult child, uh, excuse me, an adult grandchild who is the, their daughter from another future. Jean is dead again at this time. We don't really see the, the Grace reactions to that, but they're raising their grandkids and now they have Rachel who is their grandchild. Now I'm not gonna read all of the quotes from this, but let me tell everyone it's a Claremont story. It's beautiful. The Shi'ar have created a new team of assassins that they call the Shi'ar Death Commandos. And they're these <laughs> bizarre alien insane characters who can kill you by looking at you basically yeah and they have come to earth to wipe out any remnants of any of Jean Grey's relatives because they don't want the phoenix or the potential of the phoenix to ever exist again uh and they kill him no that's a very simple (laughs) I mean we'll talk about it but they show up they show up at a family feast we see Rachel has built a very strong relationship with her grandparents she's meeting her family she's starting to feel safe and have home and these aliens show up and just slaughter everyone tell me uh give us a summary if you like or tell us your reactions to uncanny x-men 466 through 468 it is a gut-wrenching read good god is it hard yeah I mean it's consistent with the tragedy of Rachel Summers as a as a character. Um, you know, if this was a person 
who came in with trauma and said, you know, I can't have good things. Um, I can't be happy because they'll be taken away from me. You know, <laughs> I don't think I would be telling her, no, you're wrong. You're, you're allowed happiness because nope, she's definitely um, not been allowed happiness. I mean, this is someone that came from a traumatic future uh, with her own traumatic past and was just finally going to, to finally had a family. Um, and was filled with such love and finally acceptance. That's a big word we should be using here, acceptance. And in a flash, it was taken away. And it's not just, it was taken away. Again, echoes of genocide and, and hunting people down based on, you know, either ethnicity and genocide's case. Um, but we can certainly extend that metaphor to other, to other groups. Um, you know, there was one thing here. I think what makes this, hurt so much is that Rachel will, will then when this happens actually there's two things I want to say she narrates and I'm sure you're going to do this she goes through every single family member um and says their name and gives them context as to you know who they were in life you know how do we remember the dead the most horrible thing to me well besides the slaughter is she's then rejected again Right. It wasn't it her grandmother who said who, who basically blamed her. Yeah. Um, so so right? 466 is the first of this three part story. Okay. They're throwing a party for Rachel and John pulls Rachel in for a dance. And it's this cute moment between grandfather and granddaughter. And then he is just obliterated, smashed into bloody pulp. And that's how the issue ends. And you're like, what the hell? Right. Second issue, the X-Men arrive but they're just not able to stop any of the family from being slaughtered. Right. And the third issue, as things are finally wrapping up, Elaine is, even the kids die, by the way, Joey and Galen, even right, the everyone. kids are killed. They're slaughtered. Everyone. It's awful. Uh, but at the very end of this is the only kind of survivor is basically Elaine. Right. And the Shi'ar Death Commandos brand Rachel with this giant Phoenix tattoo on her back. That's not super relevant to the story. But Elaine is just sobbing to Rachel at the end of this very tragic story. She says, I want my husband back. I, I want my family whole again. I want my daughter the way she was before I ever heard of Charles Xavier. I cursed the day he came into our lives. The X-Men and the Phoenix have brought nothing, brought us nothing but heartache and grief. May God forgive me. I wish, I pray that my child, my wonderful, beautiful Jean had never been born. And I wish the same as you. And I wish it had ended there, but then Claremont has Elaine die. One last shot goes off and Elaine is also killed. And I hate it. It's senseless. And this is often how war and trauma are, but it's the, those are the last words that Rachel hears uh, from Elaine before she also is killed. And she has to now carry the weight of her entire family being slaughtered. It, right. it wrenches my heart out. It's an awful, awful, painful story, but in a beautiful trauma-based way, because we love our characters to have motivation, right? It's like my mom is always saying that <laughs> that the producers of Law & Order, uh, the, the one producer, I'm not going to say his name, this is just my mom saying this. She's like, he must... He, these, his women have to suffer. They have to have trauma. <laughs> like, Rachel is that. She's that character that it's like... Not only are we going to kill every single uh, uh, person in your family, we're going to we're going to save one for the end until then they reject you. Right. You had your whole life. You were trying to be accepted uh, by the gray and summer's family. 
And then she's going to reject you in an instant after this wonderful ceremony, under, understandably seeing her whole family being slaughtered. And then we're going to kill her too. So now you really have no one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what a punch. The uh, the art in this issue is very bloody. It's very uh, it's very rough. It's Chris Bacalo. It's it's uh, it's beautiful, but it's it's tough. And these characters, the Death Commandos, are bizarre. We we we're not going to talk about them today. Let me briefly read Rachel's narration as the family is slowly slaughtered in front of her. Yes, please. Uh, and this is this is told in caption boxes. This is my family. My grandfather was John Gray, fifty seven years young and still able to play a mean game of one on one. Tenured professor of history at Bard College, diehard Red Sox fan, whose secret pleasure was trying to sing like Mick Jagger in the shower. He was going to teach me to dance. Fred Harriman was an in-law on grandpa's side, philosopher brainiac for a conservative beltway think tank. Becca Wallace was my cousin, a teacher like grandpa, third grade in Chicago. She was showing off her fiance. They'd just bought a house. They were planning kids. All I can do is scream. Phyllis Denifer was my grandma's sister. When they, were, when they were my age, they snuck into the Plaza Hotel to see the Beatles. Grandma got a kiss from John Lennon. Aunt Phyllis lived around the corner from the Dakota. She was home the night he was murdered. She heard the gunshots. Her husband, Uncle Roy, was career army. Two tours in Vietnam, taught at West Point, led troops in Desert Storm, was scheduled for deployment back to Iraq. Uncle Roger played the jazz cornet. Session musician, good but not great. One of the hurricane homeless. Julian didn't like crowds. He loved South Park, even if he wasn't supposed to watch it. He came into the world with his little scar on his forehead. So of course he totally bonded with Harry Potter. Hooked me too. We read the books together. Terry Maguire, eyes that sparkled and a smile to die for. When he looked at me, we barely had five minutes together but for a tel telepath that can be a lifetime. He was going to call tomorrow, invite me to the movies. He wanted to kiss me. He was trying to save his kid brother. Uncle Liam, Pastor Liam, he loved Keats and Dylan Thomas and James Joyce and had a voice like honey to read them aloud. His sermons were a celebration of language as well as faith. Mary Margaret and Kendra, my cousins, my age. We talked about boys and fashion and music and scandal and concluded I was woeful about them all. Derry Campbell, mom's side cousin, Red state and proud of it. Lifelong Texican, big laugh, salty language, slinky skirt and cowboy boots, perfect hair, better makeup and a diamond nose chip. Brian Gray, grandpa's kid brother, mom's favorite uncle, master carpenter, little league coach, soccer dad. Aunt Julia was a chef, no cookbooks, no TV show, no franchise, just the one restaurant serving the best home food in five states. Brian bonded with Jean. Julia with big sister, Sarah. After Sarah disappeared, they took custody of her two kids, Sarah's son, Joey, Sarah's daughter, Galen. Ooh, the writing choice. Uh, tell me what a brilliant person Chris Claremont is. <laughs> no, oh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you gotta get him on the show. Um, just such layers, sub, such depth, um, you know, having, Rachel, like I said, call out the names and give a little bit of, of the lives of her family that was taken down, that it's not just simply family. These were people, these were individuals. Um, it's just gut-wrenching. Um, and particularly in Rachel's case, it took her a while to get to know this in many ways, adopted family and be accepted. Um, but that's the beauty of Claremont. He gives us this writing. Um, 
he gives us these layers, these rich characters, and he gives us tra tragedy that we both, we, it, we're sad about it, but we love, we love to read it. So pure Claremont. Do you remember the Mandalay Bay, Las Vegas shooting from a few years back? Man broke yeah. a window in Mandalay Bay. There was like a country music concert happening outside and he just yes, started yes, shooting. Yes, yes, yes. I grew up partially in Vegas and I'd been to the Mandalay Bay a thousand times. There was something about that shooting that got me. And I remember indelibly researching as much as I could about the victims. And I was putting posts on Facebook back when I used Facebook every day about this was one of the people who were killed. This is what I learned about them. She had a kid, she was going to college. He was just starting a relationship. They're newlyweds. They just, they get the, the, this idea of people cut down in their prime. Right. That's where this story by Claremont takes me. And it's so sad. Um, yeah. And that's the Greys. Right. Jean right. occasionally remembers them in the comics from time to time. We're now in an era of storytelling on Krakoa where we're seeing some of our characters heal and feel joy and I mean they're still being attacked by giant monsters and space gods and sentinels but uh we're seeing some calm happen right um what do you learn about Jean Grey or the Grey family as we kind of wrap this up Stephanie when you take all of these comics and put them together in one place how has this affected you what do you learn well um I learned how loving Jean Grey's family uh was i have to say was now um that they wanted the best for her um they with some bumps accepted um you know who she was who her grand grandchildren were um i don't think before this i realized you know i kind of romanticized the whole scott and jean thing but as i was reading through these issues i just questioned how much of Jean sacrifices, hello, herself um, for others' happiness and, you know, putting his needs first when she probably should have just been screwing Logan's brains out. <laughs> and probably <laughs> was. I, right, probably was. And from what I hear, I think on Twitter, somebody enlarged a picture of the quarters, wherever they are living now. And like Jean and Scott's bedroom has like a door that opens up to Wolverine. I was like, yes. It's not outwardly <laughs> stated, but commonly believed the three of them are in a throuple now. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it gave me a lot. I mean, I had this insight before of part of why I was attracted to these, these storylines. Um, you know, the whole idea of, of genocide and being hunted down, you know, as part of my family's history. Um, and, you know, certainly was part of when Stan Lee uh, came up with these characters and part of, uh, you know, Magneto's whole genesis. So seeing all these comics and then how this ends with Rachel Summers, I mean, it really hit me. It really hit me because they, she still couldn't escape. So I don't know. It's, it's sad. I mean, we, we tweeted about this before coming on the show. I mean, as excited as I am. And I have to say, like, I don't hero worship. I don't fetishize characters, you know, despite what you see behind me. My husband bought me that big green. <laughs> like, I won't even wear a Jean Grey shirt. Like, I'll wear Transformers. But it means that much to me that I just won't do that. I didn't even see the movie because it means that much to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw the first movie and that's where I got that Wolverine scene, that little kiss. I was like, yes, at least I saw that. But you know, ultimately it's, there's sadness and yeah. I, there's a somber sadness and an utmost respect for just the craft. And this is what it comes down to. Um, my love of these characters and this family is really a love of the writing of Chris Claremont. 
Yeah. Um, and, and of course, coupled with the beautiful art and all of its manifestations, but it's a love of Claremont. James A. Mateus uh, is one of the only writers who's ever used Iceman's parents in anything. And my episode about them is almost all his work with Luciana Vecchio kind of popping off. But Claremont, for both the Kate Pride episode upcoming and this Jean Grey episode, Claremont's basically the only one that uses these characters. He informs, he gives his characters history and then he informs where they come from and why it matters. The side story of being the parents of Jean Grey uh, right. is a fascinating story. I, I could read a whole book about the Gray family and what it's been like for them watching as humans, watching right. their daughter in the world of mutants and what that has meant for them. Yeah. Uh, my biggest nitpick of the Krakoan era is since they can resurrect and Joey and Galen are mutants, why have they not been brought back? I, you would think that Jean would want mm. that at the top of the list, like bring my niece and nephew back. I need my family again. Yeah, um, that's interesting. But I love this story, even though it's so sad. I, If yeah. anyone else had killed the Greys except for Claremont, I think I would have been pissed right. off. Right, totally, totally. <laughs> and, you know, and kudos kudos for giving one character, like, parents. <laughs> you know, like, we, we tend to do the Disney, the Disney thing of, like, everyone's an orphan or the mother's killed. Like, I'm notorious for doing this, too, in my stories. Um, and we just happen to have this family that you know is intact i mean storm in, in your last episode you know and i think bar fox talked about this how happy yeah, it was yeah. to see a black joyous family two loving parents but then they were killed yeah um, just snap the fingers plane crash. <laughs> they were killed yeah. um so at least up until uh what was it x-men 466 with the summers they had a long run right mm. and i don't think a lot of our characters get that Stephanie Nina Pizzarillos, I adore you. I think you are gorgeous and talented and so smart. And every time we get to hang out, I leave feeling inspired. And I, uh, I just thank you for your friendship and your keen, wonderful, incredible insights. Um, thank you for the gift of your time today. This has been wonderful. And I'm going to be in this kind of like, huh, space yeah. for, for a while after we wrap up today. Well, Chad, thank you for inviting me. I'm blessed to be in your presence. Be prepared for future invitations. because <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> and you don't mind a bit of homework from time to time. Although I think you, I think you started thinking this would be a little homework and then it was more homework. Oh yeah. No, no. Next time I'm looking way ahead. <laughs> this was not a cram session. This is not daydreaming while others speak. I don't daydream while others speak, but you know, this is no sleeping. This is so next time I'll be sure Chad to uh, look ahead but to all of my listeners i do the research and i send the notes uh <laughs> so you uh, hopefully that helps <laughs> right he does not say read every x-men that gene gray's family is involved with he'll just give you the episode the actual <laughs> issues for you to actually find <laughs> but he does uh, tell you <laughs> recognizing we're releasing this in mid-november is there anything you'd like to plug and where could people find you online if they'd like to well, great. Sure. Online, either if you can say my long last name and my full name, stephaninapizzarillos.com. That's my website. That might be long. So everything you can find of me is on my link tree, the Nina Galaxy. Um, all my handles are there. The Nina Galaxy on Instagram, at Zoe, Z-O-E Health on Twitter. Um, yeah, if you're in the Bronx, New York City, I will be doing the um, Hostess Community College Fair. You can find me with my new release. I'm into artist books now, The Funeral Singer, my zines, my comics, my kids selling their own zines. It should be fun. Um, but yeah, I'll see you guys online. Um, I'm, I'm definitely active on Twitter. 
And you can find Green Milk and Lane, Green Milk and PP, like podcast on Twitter, Green Milk and underscore Lane on Instagram. The November series of Patreon episodes, three of the four of them are very sad. <laughs> but the next episode after this, I get to do the character Brainchild with Danny Lore. It's going to be amazing because he is nonsense. <laughs> so interspersed between, <laughs> interspersed between multiple sad episodes, we get this lovely one. Uh, and then right after this, the next episode coming out on the main page is uh, we're going to explore X Factor Minus One, which is a Havoc origin story. Uh, and I, uh, I have some esteemed incredible guests, Michael Elliott, uh, Justin Hall, and then uh, Anya Prosser all coming on. So wow. make sure to give that a listen. We've got some cool stuff coming up. Stephanie, thank you again. Uh, we will see you guys all back here on uh, Patreon next time. Bye. Bye.